Good afternoon and welcome to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% for June 25th, 2022. You've been listening to our intro music, Leonard Cohen's Democracy, which seems to be a good place to start since it exemplifies all the things we try to do on this program. Uh, You're listening to KFGM 101.5, our new frequency. And we're expected to say Frenchtown. And we are full-powered, full-powered Missoula Community Radio. 35 times stronger signal. 
live streaming on 101.5kfgm.org and now on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. Today, we just have the dynamic duo, Soundman Jim and Mark Anderlich. Great to have you along, Mark. Yeah, how are you, Jim? Thrilled to be here. Have 50% more work to do without the venerable Linda Jillison. Yes. I think we'll be up to the task <clears throat> just this once. I, I ate my Wheaties this morning, so <laughs> which kind of dates me, doesn't it? <laughs> I had a bowl of yakisoba with um, taco seasoning and melted cheddar. Whoa. You can't get any more international than that. That is, <laughs> that's eclectically international. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, certainly not epicurially international. <laughs> And for the first time, we can say we will soon broadcast from the new public library in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people, the ancestral homeland. And we are recording the show from the comfort of our own homes, which are also located in the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. And despite all of our deepest wishes... The pandemic is not quite over yet. We need to hang in there still by doing our part by wearing masks, yes, when you are inside in public, and by frequent washing of your hands. This show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio. And, of course, as always, we want to give Old Mick a shout-out and hoping he's enjoying the first days of summer. Yes, Mick, enjoy your summer. And um, we look forward to seeing you in the studio sometime soon. Yes. Uh, on to word of the week. And uh, this, is a, this is a real Lollapalooza. For the second time, we have a... Two words that add up to eight syllables. So here we go. <laughs> Strategic discrimination. And eight in, in Santeria is the devil's number. And it is here too, because that sure sounds calculatingly evil, Mark. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's, um, yeah. And I, I apologize for uh, the, the double word. We, we were on a roll there for a while with a single word of the week. And, and, but you know, old habits are hard to break. Um, right. Well, so I'm an aviation guy. I'm all for redundancy. Okay. <laughs> Ensure well, continued safe flight and landing. That's, that's right. Exactly right. Um, but these two words, strategic discrimination, describe very well what has become a big problem in our election process. So what is strategic discrimination and why is it a problem? I'm glad you asked, Jim. Um, <laughs> but you're not have... surprised, I ask. <laughs> yes. Um, so we, we're, we're taking all of this uh, word of the week information from uh, Regina Bateson, who's a political scientist at the University of Ottawa up, up in the Great White North. 
And in an article she wrote and published in the Cambridge University's Perspectives on Politics, September 16th, 2020. And Bateson says this, strategic discrimination occurs when an individual hesitates to support a candidate out of concern that others will object to some aspect of the candidate's identity. The problem is not animus toward the candidate. In contrast to direct bias, strategic discrimination is motivated by the belief that a candidate's identity will cause other people not to donate, volunteer, or vote for him or her, end quote. Can she illustrate this with examples? She certainly does. Uh, She gives this example in her paper, these examples in her paper. Uh, Shortly after Abdul El Saeed began running in the 2018 Democratic primary for governor of Michigan, very powerful people who call a lot of the shots in the party, quote, sat down with him for a little chat. According to El Saeed, these party insiders told him, we think you're great. You just, you know, it's not that we're racist. It's just that we think that people outside of Southeast Michigan are racist. And so you can't win. See, it makes sense. End quote. Variants of this conversation occurred across the United States throughout the 2018 campaign cycle. When former Representative Katie Hill started her campaign in California's 25th district, key gatekeepers, including a member of the House Democratic leadership, told her they didn't think a woman could beat incumbent Steve Knight. A few districts over, California Democratic Party delegates told congressional candidate Omar Siddiqui he was too brown to win, end quote. Similarly, in Alabama, a Democratic Party official told congressional candidate Adia Winfrey, quote, you can't win because you're black, end quote. In Georgia, some longtime allies of Stacey Abrams, who lots of people have heard of, would not support her gubernatorial campaign because, quote, they did not believe a black woman could win, end quote. Sunil Gupta encountered similar concerns during his primary campaign in Michigan's 11th Congressional District. Reflecting on his experience, Gupta concluded that there are, quote, two types of biases. One is the type of bias that you face with the person directly. We talk about the type of bias that a person has toward you. Then there's another bias that we don't talk about enough, which is the bias of, quote, I'm not racist, but my neighbor is racist, right? And therefore, I don't think you would be a strong candidate, not because I wouldn't vote for you, but because my neighbor would have a tough time voting for you, end quote. And I think that the second is much harder to address because it's not talked about enough. And that is ultimately the thing that I think holds a lot of candidates down, end quote. Yeah. Uh, Why is this even a thing? Yeah. Uh, Well, Bateson writes that when it comes to attitudes on race and gender, Americans typically overestimate others' levels of intolerance. This reflects the conservative lag, the quote, conservative lag of pluralistic ignorance. Even after individuals have changed their beliefs, they may not realize that others have also updated their attitudes and so believe that people are more conservative than they really are. Plural, pluralistic ignorance can thus act as a break on social change, anchoring decision-making in the prejudices of the past. This dynamic explains why concerns about the electability of women and people of color 
are so persistent, even as large majorities of Americans are themselves comfortable with the idea of a female or black president, they doubt that others feel the same way. In study one, for example, a national sample of U.S. adults estimates that on average, 47% of other Americans would not vote for a woman for president, and 42% predict other Americans would not vote for a black person for president. Though not precise measures of U.S. public opinion, these estimates are notable because they far exceed recorded levels of bias against female and black presidential candidates, which, according to the General Social Survey, was in reality about 5% of the voters who would not vote either for a woman or black for president in the year 2010. So that there's the difference. Uh, people thought 42 and 47% of Americans wouldn't vote for a woman or a black candidate, when in reality, those numbers are about 5%. Um, with such a high degree, and this is back to Bateson, with such a high degree of skepticism about others' willingness to support diverse candidates, conditions are ripe for strategic discrimination. Yeah, they sure are. And I am so glad you brought this story to our attention, Mark, because it certainly bodes well for the um, survival of our species in light of political trends we've seen in the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. Won't get any more specific than that. Mm -hmm. But um, how about the, did she also do work on how, on the mechanisms of social discrimination, how it operates? Yeah, she did a little bit. Um, so she said that strategic discrimination occurs when an individual discriminates against someone out of concern that others will object to some aspect of that person's identity. Even individuals who value diversity may consciously or unconsciously engage in strategic discrimination if they believe that other people are biased. As in strategic voting, individuals engaged in strategic discrimination support candidates for strategic reasons rather than according to their true preferences. Yet strategic discrimination also involves behaviors other than voting, such as donating to candidates, volunteering, and making endorsements. These actions shape the field early in a primary, determining who appears on the ballot come election day. Theoretically, strategic discrimination can affect any candidate who is outside the norm due to his or her sexual orientation, class, age, religion, national origin, parental status, or other dimensions of their identity. However, I focus in the study on gender and race because these are especially salient characteristics, and there is a robust literature on racial and gender discrimination in politics. And mm. So class could also be subject to strategic discrimination? Yes, I think Joe Biden, the Democratic Party gatekeepers, and some primary voters said exactly that about the presidential primary campaigns of Bernie Sanders. Sanders's class-based politics was deemed to be beyond what voters would accept, which made him unelectable in the gatekeeper's eyes. Even though he was, and still is, the country's most pol popular politician. The gatekeeper said something like, well, we are not against Sanders, mind you, but voters won't go for the Democratic Socialist. Our priority is to beat Trump. Mm. <laughs> but don't women and people of color do less well than men and whites when it comes to winning elections? 
uh, after all, we are, um, so we are told, a sexist and racist country. Well, as it turns out, um, that is not true about women and people of color winning less of their elections. Here is Bateson again. Quote, when women and people of color run for office in the United States, they do well. Female candidates win as often as male, and racial bias appears not to play a decisive role in most modern elections. Indeed, in the 2018 midterms, female and non-white candidates won at rates that equaled or exceeded their white male counterparts, end quotes. And she cites many studies that effectively support this claim. Wow. So why do women and people of color, and maybe the working class too, remain underrepresented in U.S. politics? Well, here's Bateson again. She says that the candidate emergence literature suggests this disparity may originate in the pre-primary period when prospective candidates test the waters, decide to run, and establish their viability. During this critical time, even slight headwinds can derail a nascent campaign. And compared to white men, women and people of color must also navigate a rockier path to candidacy with more bumps and off-ramps along the way. Female and non-white candidates have to deal with overt harassment and disparities in financial resources, party recruitment, personal and professional networks, and political ambition and self-efficacy. On top of these well-documented challenges, I identify another obstacle facing diverse candidates in the primary period, strategic discrimination. Ah, so, and that's, those are Bateson's words. It, yes. Um, another negative is, um, is, is the flawed and unreal belief that there is strategic discrimination. You look at all, you look at all the real ones and, uh, uh, you know, non-white, non-male candidates of, are, you know, getting, getting a boost that isn't really that big. Well, um, I'm not sure what you mean, but I, yeah, I'm I, not sure either. <laughs> I do think though, that it's most elections are decided really pre-primary right. or primaries and um, in terms of what choice you really have. So, gotcha, gotcha. Um, and so I think that it's in those time periods when there's less attention and whatnot mm-hmm. that, people make those calculations saying, well, I mean, you're too dark, so I don't think you can win. You're, you're mm-hmm. going to alienate white voters or something, right. you know, something to that effect. Right. I think that's, I think that's what she's trying to say. And yeah. you, besides of all the, the sort of direct discrimination that women and, and people of color mm-hmm. uh, endure um, that th- this is another one, but from supposed allies. Right. Uh, right. So, so it, so the discrimination actually occurs before the general election in who, and who isn't chosen as the general election candidate. That that's right. So Bateson says this strategic discrimination is closely related to the idea of electability in the run-up to primary, to a primary election, party leaders, donors, and activists want to recruit and support a well-qualified candidate who shares their policy preferences. But they also need a candidate who will be capable of winning the general election. So party gatekeepers and primary voters attempt to guess how others will react to prospective candidates. 
Will a candidate be able to raise the money necessary to run an aggressive campaign? Will he or she generate positive media coverage? Will enough general election voters support a candidate or will they refuse to vote for him or her? In this, quote, futures market of politics, that's what it is, uh, female and non-white candidates are at a disadvantage. If party leaders, donors, and primary voters think a candidate could face discrimination later in the campaign season, they may hesitate to place their bets on him or her. Strategic discrimination thus forces female and non-white candidates to work doubly hard to establish themselves as real contenders. In addition to running a, quote, traditional campaign, they also have to run a parallel campaign of belief convincing people that it is possible for them to win. Also sounds like the Sanders campaigns. seems to me uh, ironic that Bateson is finding that it is supposed allies of women and people of color that practice this kind of a discrimination. It is ironic. And she says so very <laughs> d- distinctly. And, and I agree that it's ironic and maybe, and I'm just going to throw this in there, maybe ironic to a lesser degree than the irony of the descendants of the survivors of the Holocaust who live in Israel, uh, applying criminal apartheid methods in their treatment of the Palestinians. You would think they would oh. know better, right? But ironically, uh, yes. no. Uh, <laughs> actually, uh, I have lived that (laughs) as as his son of a Holocaust survivor who was very disappointed with what um, present day Israel has made itself into. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So, well, Bateson, Regina Bateson does offer some possible remedies though. And um, first of all, I just want to say it is revealing that women and people of color, in fact, win as much as males and whites. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just bears repeating because that's, that is a fact that's counter to, you know, received wisdom as it were. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it, that might not have been true, say 40, 50 years ago, but it certainly is true now. Um and um, remember, we, you know, we said that the actual bias in people, as best that can be measured, is around 5%. 5% of voters would not vote for a woman or vote for a black, okay? And, uh, and that's much lower than what the perception is. So um, the fact that, and, and that fact runs counter to the identity politics narrative, which considers working class deplorables to be unalterably sexist and racist. And we've heard that plenty mm-hmm. too. Right? This is part of the appeal of Trump and the right wing, I think, though, too. <clears throat> they are not branding working class people as sexist and racist. Who likes to be called those things? <laughs> I mean, right. you know, if, you, if, if your candidates are going to insult you, why would they vote for you? Yeah, I know. I don't like being called those things by um, ultra conservatives and evangelicals. So, right. I guess it works both ways. It does work both ways. So Bateson continues, however, the third experiment of her experiments, she had three, uh, investigates possible strategies for combating strategic discrimination. It finds that informing subjects about the true low levels of bias against female and black candidates, like we're doing here. Mm -hmm has no effect. (laughs) 
It has she she her experiments find it has no effect. Neither does identifying strategic discrimination as a problem and discouraging subjects from engaging in it. More promisingly, however, when anti-Trump subjects read a message emphasizing the strategic importance of black voters, they see black Democratic presidential candidates as more competitive vis-a-vis Trump. A priming message about the success of a black female congressional candidate in a majority white Trump-leaning district has similar if smaller effects for both female and black candidates. Rather than attempting to change mis- perceptions of others' biases, diverse candidates may be better served by emphasizing their own strategic advantages. Mm, so is that her thesis statement? <laughs> that's, yeah, <laughs> Sum that's it all up. This is, this is what I offer. Yeah, that's I basically it. Yep. So uh, uh, as practiced in electoral politics in the U.S., perhaps uh, the most important discrimination practiced against women and people of color is by Democrats themselves. <laughs> Haven't we been saying that a few times? And that is because <laughs> many Democrats perceive the unwashed masses, adorable deplorables, yeah, adorable. As, irre- <laughs> as irredeemably sexist and racist and so consider women and people of color unelectable. I, I find it, you know, given that this is a one study, right, and there mm-hmm. needs to be more, it's really hard to reach any other conclusion than exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Bateson concludes her papers this way. <clears throat> As politics devolves into partisan warfare, each side becomes ever more desperate to just win, baby. Uh, <laughs> that's that's her saying, right. writing that. As a result, primaries may hinge more and more on electability, which is a raced and gendered concept. Even if women, and classed, I would say too, Mm -hmm. even if women and people of color objectively win their elections at the same rates as white men, they are perceived as less electable. So donors, party activists, and primary voters may gravitate toward white male candidates who feel like a safe bet rather than taking a risk on a woman or a person of color that's strategic discrimination in action. It absolutely. Yeah. And, and did she really say just win, baby? That's, yes, she did. That's pulled she from a Canadian. That seems that seems a little too chummy and um <laughs> and fresh for yeah, that's pretty fresh. for the polite Canadians. I would expect something like just well, win, my dear friend. I, I don't think she's Canadian, actually. I oh, think, okay. She, 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 she tried, showed her colors. Well, red, she, white, and blue. She, she tried running for Congress in Michigan and wondered oh. why she couldn't garner support. Right. And I got so, you. And that's part of her experience. I mean, you know, she's a political scientist, too. So she took a real life experience and then started studying it. Um, and that was published by the, uh, it was sponsored by the American Political Science Association. So that oh, is, was? that is the, that's the, okay. the top level of political science in, in, in the oh, United I, States. Why did I think it was University of Ottawa? Oh. Well, it, it, she, she is, she works at the University of Ottawa. So oh. she's a professor there. Oh, I just had to go to Canada to get a job because she's a woman. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. So I guess we're zooming into current news. And as usual, lots of news to cover from this week. What's first in our current news, Mark? 
Well, as it always has been, seems like forever and a day, uh, despite uh, 19 months of vaccine against COVID-19 being available in the U.S., the pandemic is still with us. News alert. <laughs> According to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, the overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is now steady at a rate of about 100,000 cases a day. Down, however, that's down from over 1,382,000 per day on January 10th, 2022, which was by far the highest rates for the U.S. during the entire pandemic. And um, yeah, we've got some diving a little deeper into that. That's that's uh, not necessarily a very good thing. Uh, however, uh, now many scientists and others question the validity and accuracy of the CDC's case numbers. Because of the prevalence of unreported home tests, lack of uniform data reporting requirements by the states, and generally the incompetency of the CDC. Oh, uh, <laughs> my Lord. That's it. Oh. Uh, the highest per capita rates of COVID infection today are in France, Taiwan, which had escaped the initial one big time, mm -hmm. right? Portugal, Denmark, Bahrain, Australia, which had wow, escaped exactly. it. Yeah. Is, Israel is now on the list. They're one of the mm -hmm. highest vaccinated rate countries in the entire world. Um, and they're and, in the top 10 in, in COVID cases now. Right. And New, New Zealand Ze used to be stellar. New Zealand, right, exactly. Germany and Singapore, in that order, where new variants of the COVID-19 virus is making the rounds. At over 1,140,000 deaths, the U.S. is still by far the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. <clears throat> this is equivalent to the population of the city of San Jose, California. The U.S. has so far accounted for 16% of all the deaths in the world, and even with unreliable data for 16% of the confirmed cases all was still only 4% of the world's population. Well... <clears throat> I think it's our chance to say those are grim things to be exceptional at. That's right. Indeed it is. And it gets even more exceptional as we will see later. Oh, gosh. Okay. How about the situation in Montana? Taking well, it home. Yeah. We'll bring it home here. According to the state of Montana COVID-19 website and the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, Montana has had 3,444 deaths from COVID. That's 10 uh, in the last two weeks. 10 people from, have died in Montana from COVID in the last two weeks. This is about equal to that of the population of the town of Glasgow, the, the, the sum total. As of Friday, Montana is averaging a rising rate of about 299 new cases a day. <clears throat> this is already the fourth worst outbreak in Montana. And the rate is still climbing. We're just at the beginning, it looks like. Um, fully 25% of all Montanans have had COVID. And there are currently 87 people hospitalized with the virus, up 16 from two weeks ago. Uh, we have been saying this since February 2020, and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks when in public spaces indoors to distance themselves from others as best you can, and to frequently wash your hands if we are going to beat this pandemic. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. 
And there is more on the pandemic, more specifically on the vaccines, Mark? Yes, Jim, and it's not pretty. Um, first is a June 17th study called Outcomes of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 as we call it, Outcomes of COVID-19 Reinfection by Ziyad Al-Ali, Benjamin Bowe, and Yan Zi through the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Uh, though this study has not yet been peer-reviewed, its conclusions likely underplay the seriousness of its conclusions. Keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. The researchers, uh, and there's been lots of commentary by um, uh, virologists and doctors about this too, this really path-breaking uh, study. Um, so in the, they, the researchers say in their abstract, quote, First infection with SARS-CoV-2 is associated with increased risk of acute and post-acute death and sequelae in the pulmonary and extrapulmonary organ systems. Okay, so that's something we already know, right? Um, that I didn't that, know sequelae. I, yeah, I know. I have to ask our Greek scholar, Linda. I, I, I had to look that up too. <laughs> um, but um, so this is, you know, this, these are scientists talking, so not me. Um, mm. But in, in the pulmonary and other organ systems that there is an increase, if you get COVID the first time, there's an increased risk of uh, damage or death in your pulmonary system or other organ mm. systems. Um, that's, that's been known for a while. However, whether reinfection adds to the risk incurred after the first infection is not clear. So they decided to do this study. Here we use the national healthcare databases of the US Department of Veteran Affairs to build a cohort of people with first infection, which numbers uh, a, a little over a quarter of a million people. So this is a, this is a yeah. gigantic study, right? Uh, adequate data points for sure. That's right, a quarter million people. Um, and then uh, reinfection, which means two or more infections, that number, is about 39,000 people and a non-infected control group, which is about mm, 5.4 million. To, and they use th these cohorts to estimate risks and six month burdens of all cause mortality, hospitalization, and a set of pre-specified incident outcomes. We show that compared to people with first infection, reinfection contributes additional risks of all-cause mortality, hospitalization, and adverse health outcomes in the pulmonary and several extrapulmonary organ systems, which means the cardiovascular disorders, mm -hmm. which is your heart in your uh, blood vessels, right. coagulation and hematologic disorders having to do with your blood, diabetes, fatigue, gastrointestinal disorders, kidney disorders, mental health disorders, musculoskeletal disorders and neurologic disorders. That's, uh, that's, that's a pretty comprehensive list. What did they leave? Toenail uh, fungus? I mean, I mean cancer is not on there. <laughs> uh, no. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. And I take it back. Uh, yeah. And kidney stones. Well, no kidney disorders. Right. Um, right. So uh, anyway, um, so they used all this. They, they showed that the first infection and the, uh, the reinfection after the first infection adversely affected people in these, in these organs. And the risks were evident in those who were unvaccinated, had one shot, 
or two or more shots prior to the second infection. So it makes no difference if you're vaccinated is what they're saying, mm -hmm. what the study is finding. Um, the risks were most pronounced in the acute phase, of course, like when you're really sick with it, um, but persisted in the post-acute phase of reinfection, and most were still evident at six months after reinfection. Compared to non-infected controls, assessment of the cumulative risks of repeated infection showed that the risk and burden increased in a graded fashion according to the number of infections. So the more infections, the higher your risk. The constellation, sense, yeah. yep, the constellation of findings show that reinfection adds non-trivial risks of all-cause mortality, hospitalization, and adverse health outcomes in the acute and post-acute phase of the reinfection, reducing overall burden of death and disease due to SARS-CoV-2 will require strategies for reinfection prevention. End quote. So, just to sum up, uh, as many as many researchers are are concluding as well that there is no herd immunity for this virus. Repeat, there is no herd immunity. And that infections of the COVID-19 virus escalate in seriousness each time you get infected. Well, isn't that in stark contrast to what we were hearing from people with orange hair a um, couple of years ago? And yeah, uh -huh. yeah, the, the, yeah the, it, the, it diametric opposite. What more can no you ask for? So the yeah. trick is to not get infected or reinfected. Wear exactly. that mask, wash your hands. Yes. But Social distance. That's it. Um, but the problem is that in the U.S. mass mandates, restrictions on public gatherings, closures of businesses and events have all but disappeared. It's not so in China. China is probably going to be setting right. the, the, the way forward here as they have been for a while. Um, but in the U.S., we've dropped all that stuff. In its place, the Biden administration has led us into a vaccine-only prevention strategy. Now, to be fair, probably Trump would administration would have done the same thing. Uh, but it, nevertheless, it, it's been the Biden administration who has uh, done this. Um, this vaccine-only prevention strategy worked for a little while, but now it's apparent that the COVID immunity from the vaccine lasts maybe, maybe six months at best. At worst, it is completely ineffective against catching COVID. There are tons of stories about people getting the virus weeks apart, even if fully vaxxed and boosted. And we don't know the extent of the problem as last year, this, as you remember, Jim, the CDC mm -hmm. stopped keeping track of so-called breakthrough cases, people getting COVID even if vaccinated. So we don't really, we're operating blind. We don't really mm -hmm. know exactly. The, the numbers that we're working with here are maybe are underreported and, um, and, and not as reliable. Um, so, I, yeah. You know, yeah, when we reported about CDC stopping keeping track of the so-called breakthrough cases, uh, we quoted a nurses union as saying that that was tantamount to malpractice by the CDC. And here we are. If, if the mRNA vaccine's effectiveness has become close to zero, then we are setting up for a terrible new wave of COVID in the very near future. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> I, I I see back to the word irony, um, a valid comparison between Bateson's work 
on strategic discrimination and the administration's eagerness to go with measures that they presume will appeal to the uninformed and the unwashed in every sense of the word. So, you know, right. cut back on the restrictions because it's more politically palpable to the people you think you need to reach, even if it's wrong. Well, both <clears throat> both the Biden and the Trump administrations and, you know, in Montana, the Gianforte administrations completely capitulating public health to the needs of uh, businesses and to <clears throat> remain open. And, uh, you know, we're <clears throat> we we uh, put all the money on black. Right. And uh, <laughs> which means the the vaccine and it and the ball landed on red. So, um mm -hmm. You know, what are we going to do? This is um, I think it's actually going to I think this is going to heavily damage the Democrats in, in uh, midterm elections. I, I really think so. Um, not oh. that not that the Republicans would do much better. I'm just mm -hmm. saying that, you know, it's. You know, what can you say? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, well, this is voice of the people so we can say what we want. <laughs> yeah, we can say it. <laughs> That's right. right. As, lo as we're long the as the people, right? As long we're as not we that five percent. We're the ninety-four percent. <laughs> yeah, we're, that's right. Yeah, you, so, you and and it the numbers don't add because add up to hundred because of rounding. So mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> that's right. And um, any more good news on vaccines? Oh <laughs> boy, bad news. Well, um, I mean, maybe. I mean, um, it's yes and no on this one. So according to a report in the blog, Naked Capitalism, which we uh, reliably quote uh, fairly frequently on this show, uh, on, on a June 24th blog, uh, there are stories coming from medical practitioners who are refusing to inject the mRNA vaccines, which is what we have in this country, mm -hmm. um, especially under uh, in, in the mRNA vaccines in any child, especially under five years of age. They are objecting to the lack of robust testing for safety and efficacy of these vaccines for children. Some public health nurses are also resigning instead of being forced to provide the vaccines to children. As reported in the Tampa Bay Times on June 22nd, the giant grocery chain Publix is refusing to administer the vaccine to children four years and younger while they're perfectly willing to provide vaccines for everyone uh, age five and above. Um, <clears throat> so there have been about three, so the, the, here, here's, I'm gonna throw some numbers at you just to give mm -hmm. you some sort of sense of maybe why this is starting to happen. Um, uh, there have been about 350 deaths from COVID for children under 18 years since the pandemic began. Okay, so remember that number 350. Um, all, every one of them tragic, right? Um, a recent database search of the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS, uh, which is a part of the CDC, as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. reveals that for patients <clears throat> aged 0 to 17, um, 0 to 3 days post-inoculation, so like just immediately after they got the shot, uh, this is the following uh, death and permanent disability. <clears throat> with the Johnson of, of children under the age 17 and younger. 
Johnson and Johnson vaccine one, Moderna vaccine 37, Pfizer vaccine 237 for a total of 275 deaths or permanent disabilities of children from the mRNA vaccines and compare that to 350 dying from COVID. Mm -hmm. And for hospital admissions or emergency room visits for children from the mRNA vaccines, Johnson & Johnson 13, Moderna 266, Pfizer 5,527, for a total of 5,806 hospitalizations or ER visits for children. Um, All of this is certainly underreported. Finally, it seems that many medical providers are starting to blow the whistle on this bad, nay murderous political policy. And I just wanna stop right there. Remember the number was 350 children have died from COVID, 250 had died from the vaccine, and 5,806 have been hospitalized or sent to the ER because of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Where, where, where's the, uh, you know, the doctors, they're appalled, right? Um, one's comparing this to violation of the Nuremberg principles. Um, President Biden crowed about the availability for children of these vaccines saying, we are the only country giving these shots to under five-year-old kids. Well, Jim, there's another example of American exceptionalism. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm without words. So I'll ask you to say something, Mark. What's next in the news for us? <laughs> yeah. Anything good? Um, well, uh, for this show, I'll leave the good news to you. All right. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling like Dr. Gloom and Doom here today. Um, and I'll be the bearer of bad tidings. But these are important things to know, uh, especially yeah. since um, we we haven't been given like straight talk about much of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but these are, I think, really important things. Uh, one other piece of bad news. On Thursday, there was news of the death of longtime president of the Montana Federation of Public Employees, Eric Fever. Eric was very good at political action and lobbying the legislature. He also oversaw the merger of most of the public sector unions, making MFPE the largest union in the state. Rest in power, Eric. Yeah. um, There are no better people on this earth than union organizers. There you go. So I've got more. I've, I've got one more bad news. (laughs) <laughs> okay that okay lay it all out mark all right well the british so government, we can have a nice weekend yeah yeah there we go get it all out of us the british government of boris johnson has decided to go ahead with extraditing julian assange from his london prison oh, no. to a u.s prison yep assange is the publisher of wikileaks many of you know uh, which revealed many war crimes committed by the u.s government in iraq and elsewhere by publishing edited official government documents leaked by others like Chelsea Manning. And also, they also published uh, uh, un- documents, uncomfortable 
truth documents by other governments as well, including Russia, um, you know, uh, some uh, uh, France, uh, some some other countries in the world that uh, they they basically you know did not uh, uh, pick sides in what they published, but for for the sake of the U.S., they're certainly they don't really care about <laughs> the revelations of corruption in the Russian government or the Ukrainian government. Uh, they're more interested in uh, revealing the corruption in our own government um, and in crimes as well. WikiLeaks published the hacked emails, for instance, from the Democratic National Committee that showed, shall we say, the unfair strategic discrimination practice against Bernie Sanders. See, I knew I'd get that in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, according to Wikipedia, WikiLeaks published a series of documents which detailed the CIA's electronic surveillance and cyber warfare capabilities, after which senior CIA officials discussed potentially kidnapping and assassinating Assange. Nothing mm. like nothing like uh, oh, yeah. killing the bearer of bad news, right? And he's uh, not even a Latin American. Uh, can we do that? <laughs> yeah, right. He's Australian, actually. Um, well, for all of this, the U.S. wants to put Assange on trial for violation of the Espionage Act of 1917, the notorious one that, you know, such major criminals like uh, Eugene uh, V. Debs was right. prosecuted Point. and jailed under for calling World War I, a, you know, a, a crime against humanity. Yeah. Um, which of course it was <clears throat> same so, thing Jeanette Rankin said. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, but one of the outcomes for being convicted under the espionage act potentially is, uh, to be put to death. Um, this persecution of Assange threatens not only his life, but the freedom of press in the United States. Yeah. A significant event in a time when the capacity of the general population to understand what's going on in the world is being threatened all the time by misinformation and withheld information. Exactly. So, you know, poor Mr. Assange. Yeah. And I, I have to say his health is not great. Right. Good he's, point. He, he is appealing. Um, he's appealing this in the British. He has an appeal process in the, in Britain. Um, it's not, I don't know. It's hard to say, but I think people are thinking it's not likely that the, the extradition would be stopped. And, um, you know, uh, when Assange gets sent to the United States, uh, you know, who knows what might happen to him in, in, in U.S. prison when the CIA wants to assassinate, you know, or thinking seriously about assassinating him. You know, his prospects aren't great in U.S. prisons. Yeah, that's a genuine tragedy, and I wasn't aware that a decision had been made. I was always hoping that in the 11th hour, you know, somebody would be reasonable. Right. Well, I could expect this outcome in the prior administration, but uh, with this one, um, it's oh, well, another check mark on the wrong column. Yeah, I think the uh, I, I I think there's an a special. Uh, Hatred maybe is too strong of a word, but a special fear and loathing um, of uh, Assange by um, both Barack Obama and, and Joe Biden, I think, um, because, mm. uh, uh, you know, have to say that uh, the WikiLeaks revelations, and he's not the one 
doing the, you know, taking the materials, right? Chelsea Manning, uh, you know, mm-hmm, right. uh, he just published what uh, she had uh, provided, which was clear evidence of crimes being committed in Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Syria, you name it. Um, and uh, we need that information um, in this country if we're going to have a real democracy. Um, and uh, and the, that the sort of response of the mainstream media has been to not cover it <laughs> or cover it very uh, shallowly. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, it could be one of them next, right? But they don't seem to be taken that seriously. Yeah, it's tragic. And um, yeah, I, I, I fit him in with that Troika along, you know, Chelsea Manning. Is it Edward Snowden? Edward Snowden, right. Oh, I remembered. Yeah, it doesn't often good. happen to a 70-year-old man. Yeah. And, and, Snow- you know, Julian. I don't think WikiLeaks re, you know, published Snowden's revelations. I, I think that was like in the Guardian newspaper and, and elsewhere. Right. Okay. Um, so, but the British government threatened the Guardian, right? And in mm-hmm. no uncertain right. terms. And uh, I think the Guardian sort of semi-pulled back. But, and, and, and then on the other side of the pond, it, this is the government of Boris Johnson, which mm-hmm. uh, is is like he's he's kind of the he, he's sort of the Trump, but with the uh, orange hair. <laughs> right, right. He has he has white hair. Yeah, he has white hair. But I I I, I picture him as having orange hair. Right. Um, he, he's he he's and his his political days are pretty much numbered too. By the way, we so. can only hope. Well, but who's going to take his place? It's going to be some other knucklehead Tory, right? Um, <laughs> or or some sellout laborite, right? Um, I'm, I'm editorializing here. Or but, someone Putin wants. He worked over yeah. here. Why not work there, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm I'm reminded of the statue in Berlin of Snowden, Assange, and Manning in three chairs and there's a fourth chair and the intention of the sculptor was it's your turn you go in the fourth chair you sit in that chair right and that's you know in in some ways especially since we're you know i think we here are journalists of a sort and um i think we're trying to provide you know the public with good information but yet there is a you know, there's an ethic about um, remaining true to the truth and publishing without fear or favor, right? And these sorts of things. Um, we, you know, like the w- with the uh, uh, war in Ukraine, we're 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 seeing just like an absolute collapse of any of that kind of mm-hmm. uh, of that ethic and um and so but it's it's been you know it's been like this for a while this is not exactly new it's just gotten worse so and speaking of things that have just gotten worse oh uh, you know um we have some international labor news oh good it's surprisingly um uh, you know representative of things that have been going on for decades and it you know, reached a boiling point in the last week and um, Tunisia of all places. Oh, do tell Jim. Yeah. Which is interesting because it was problems in Tunisia that the Jasmine revolution back in like 2007 or 2008 that 
that created the Arab Spring that was so disruptive and troubling to the world in all kinds of ways. And um, what makes Tunisia unique is that 10 years before independence, there was this mega colossal super union. Um, since we're in French town, I'll have to <laughs> give it to us straight. The Union Générale Tunisienne du Travail. Ah. Yeah, the U, yeah, the UGTT uh, has like a, a million members and it's a, it's a huge swath of the government. And uh, it has a history of cooperating with other factions in the country and being a unified force. Huh. And, you know, even in 2015, um, uh, they got uh, in conjunction with a, with a bunch of people that are working with the human rights league, um, confederation of lawyers. Uh, they got the Nobel peace prize. Wow. Which show, yeah. Which shows that they're, uh, they are legitimately powerful and they're legitimately good and purposeful. And right now the issue is the international monetary fund and a failing local economy that is making terms of the loan packages they have to be untenable. And conveniently, the IMF will only have a bailout that they will buy into if it's contingent on the UGTT and participating. So oh, wow. um, there's a general strike going on, which really, which generally shuts down the whole country since yeah. most of the people that have jobs are, are all under the same umbrella. Um, maybe I should say tent since it's a desert. And, uh, you know, Please don't. Tunisian, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Tunisian economist um, Padel Kabab has said that the, the strike is just is a culmination of a collective failure by more than 10 governments, the UGTT, he calls them out too, the IMF, and, uh, and international finance. Now, you know, you know, contrast that with what's going with what's going on in Ecuador right now, which is which is uh, started in rural areas because uh, costs for essential goods like fuel and um, agricultural you know, products get way out of hand. So they, there's there is a very active and militant. Uh, you know, organization that's a combination of of indigenous groups, and uh, they're they go under the heading C O N A I E, and they migrated to the capital Quito, and have had people migrating into town and making themselves known, and the, the, which is sort of their um, uh, you know modus operandi, and so far. Three people have died. A hundred people are wounded. Wow. And 18 police officers are missing. So their new president, the conservative Lasso, has declared a state of emergency in six out of 24 provinces. And the Amazonian area is um, has been the most active. We're most of the... Uh, you know, indigenous uh, communities are. And the um, Erica Guevara Rosas is 
for who's head of the uh, American division of Amnesty International said that the Lasso's repression of protest is provoking human rights crisis. And uh, fuel has been an issue because you need fuel if you're a farmer. And the, the three main concerns that the indigenous peoples have come up with is uh, cost too much for fuel, cost too much for agricultural needs, and more money has to be spent on education. So back in the day, 2019, a prior government was complaining about fuel prices. Uh, the president then uh, reinstated, or, you know, went back to a fixed price then he and then he went back and then he reneged and went to a floating fuel price based on international markets so they're back where they started from uh i i'm concerned about the ecuadorian conflict because the uh, government is uh, unrepentant and unwilling to uh listen to the demands of a group that's been around a lot longer than the government has <laughs> So watch this space. Yeah. You are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming also on 1015kfgm.org. That's interesting. There's, there's a, one of the connections there besides workers organized well enough mm -hmm. to carry out a, a large strike, right? Um, uh, which we don't have in this country, right? Mm. Lamentably. Look, yeah, well, and, and in a future show, we'll kind of revisit this uh, about the AFL-CIO convention. But um, besides that, though, it's the IMF that's kind of a common denominator in, yes. uh, in, in these struggles. So tell us more about the IMF in both cases, Jim, can you? Well, I... In, in in Ecuador as as well as I can see, uh, they have they have a, a robust economy between you know tropical fruit <laughs> and filling ships with bananas, and they have a very active you know petroleum quarter, and it's been making a lot of money in the last couple of years. In fact, uh, Nora Brito, who's a is an economist for the International Crisis Group, has said. Uh, this is a crisis that should not have happened because the rise in fuel prices in the, in the recent past has brought an awful lot of income into Ecuador, and it, none of it's going to where it needs to be. The people that are suffering are worse off. They're paying yeah. more for fuel that they don't have. Yeah, so and it's yeah. No, go it's, ahead, Mark. It's, it's you know, and I think it's probably, um, I read a little bit about Tunisia too, that um, <clears throat> the IMF, and they're trying to prevent this from happening, by the right, way. So, right. Um, but the IMF would go in, uh, you know, with a total, still with a total neoliberal economic, uh, neoliberal capitalist economic perspective, mm -hmm. which we've talked about in the past is, is really fails at helping ordinary people do better. Um, but it's not designed to do that. It's, it, I mean, it's designed to do that, but to make, uh, wealthy people wealthier. Right. And so, yeah. uh, and so what they've done is they've, uh, you know, and I, I'm not sure about the case in Ecuador, but, uh, wanting to, uh, force, uh, Tunisia to, 
uh, earn dollars, right? So they can pay back uh, a big debt in, back in dollars <clears throat> and make Tunisia dependent upon the IMF and, and on the dollars, mm -hmm. right? And so they will they will consequently and that takes first priority i mean they they also want them to cut any government programs to people that help them with food or shelter or heating costs you name it uh and so you know it's it's all about uh, destroying unions for sure but also uh, oh. government uh governments doing mm. things for people in particular yeah, so this is kind of an outlier in Tunisia where the IMF has said, we're not getting involved in anything that doesn't include the unions, and they must be satisfied before we will have a final agreement. Yeah, the, the sins of the IMF are a legend. Yeah. And I, I think the difference here between Tunisia and Ecuador is Ecuador is a petrostate, and, and there's a lot of money coming in sometimes, but uh, it doesn't seem to be going to where it's needed for national development. Right. And, I, and I knew a lot of Ecuadorians in my past, and they said the worst thing that ever happened to the country is when it got rich. And they, <laughs> and they, they wish they could put the oil back in the ocean where back, it came from. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that something? Well, um, yeah. And usually in these cases, right, the, you know, like in this country too, it's no different where, if there's an increase in economic activity or, you know, the country is doing better economically in some ways, it's not mm -hmm. evenly, the, the results of that is not evenly distributed, right? Right. And so it's distributed all the way to the top, uh, way more than it is on the bottom. Right. And uh, we, you know, we just see this played out time and time again, and it's mm -hmm. not, it's not necessary. Yeah. Look at Nigeria. <laughs> So uh -huh. as long as we're in Africa. Yeah. yeah so, and, and that's a bad, I mean, that country has got a lot of problems and right. it should be well, it, it should be one of the wealthiest countries in Africa. I mean, Absolutely. it is, it is, you know, in aggregate, but there is so much poverty because it's all distributed to, to a very few wealthy. People. Right. And don't forget the environmental degradation. Oh yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. As is our theme here, um, we definitely promote the cause of strong democratic unions. Uh, besides the third wave workers of Missoula, black coffee roasters, there are efforts to do more union organizing in Western Montana, among other coffee and service industry workers as well. Well, that's right, Jim. Anyone who works in Western Montana who is interested in organizing or knows someone who does you can find support and practical help by calling or emailing the Western Montana Workers Alliance. There are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going. You can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance at westernmtwa at gmail.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-N-M-T-W-A at gmail.com or you can leave a message at 406-924-3830. That's 
That was Bernice Johnson Reagan sing in company singing I've Been Climbing High Mountains Trying to Get Home. Hi, my name's Carol Wald. I'm a member of the Western Montana chapter of Democratic Socialists of America. Um, I'm going to read uh, from a recent guest editorial that we had in the Missoula. Reproductive rights and political power. Despite the fact that 70% of Americans want to preserve Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court overturned it. This points to a profound lack of democracy in our country. Is this assault really being driven by the religious right or is it the corporate world using abortion to pit the people against each other? What is going on? 
Here are a few factoids to make your head spin. In 1947, Prescott Bush, George H.W. Bush's father, was the treasurer of Planned Parenthood. In 1967, California Governor Ronald Reagan signed the country's most liberal abortion law. In 1968, presidential candidate Richard Nixon advocated federal funds for family planning. In 1980, George H.W. Bush campaigned for president as a pro-choice Republican. In 1968, evangelical magazine Christianity Today concluded that, quote, Abortion is a very complicated moral issue, unquote. In 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention came out in favor of opening up access to abortion in many cases, and it reaffirmed that position in 1974 and again in 1976. What changed was that the Republican Party started to use the religious right to its own advantage. Jesus said, quote, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven, unquote. What place does Christianity have in an economic system that's based on accumulating wealth and creating poverty? The sixth commandment says, you shall not kill. Where does it fit in a country based on war and conquest? Though there have been theologians who justify wealth as a reward for the so-called Protestant work ethic, Christian and capitalist values are generally really at odds with each other. How do you convince Christians to support corporate rule while turning them against movements they may otherwise support? Well, convince them that abortion is the number one evil, far worse than all the others. The political movements of the 1960s were successfully challenging poverty, racism, misogyny, homophobia, the anti-war movement was vast. We were building a beautiful new world. We were advocating for political and economic democracy. We were challenging corporate power and that was not acceptable. The anti-abortion strategy is an amazing tool for dividing people. Divide us against each other so that we can't effectively challenge the powers that be. Reagan, the Bushes, and Trump opportunistically manipulated the religious right to that end. Attacks on reproductive rights force a lot of activists to spend a huge amount of energy working to preserve those rights, energy that could have been used on movement building. That energy comes at the expense of every other objective we could be working on. But we can't let the Democratic Party off the hook. Democrats in Congress could have passed laws guaranteeing abortion rights anytime they had a majority in the last few decades. 
And instead, they sold out our welfare programs, healthcare, labor rights, schools, and even threatened Social Security and Medicare during the Clinton and Obama administrations. They were counting on Republican attacks on reproductive rights to scare people into loyally supporting them. Our own Max Baucus in Montana prevented Medicare for all, meaning reproductive justice itself was off the table. As both parties reap the benefits of division, the wealthy get wealthier, poverty and homelessness increases, mass incarceration thrives and violence is surging. But let's say the status quo is working just fine for the 1%. We'll never safely preserve reproductive rights under capitalism. Where wealth is power, there is little democracy. And without democracy, all of our rights are in peril. Capitalists always use the tools at hand to maintain their power. Dividing people against each other over abortion is only one of them, and it has proven very useful. I have dreamed on this mountain since first I was my mother's daughter, and you can't just take my dreams away. And now with me watching, you may drive a big machine, but I was born a great big woman, and you can't just take my dreams away without me fighting. It's so Raised my many daughters, some died young, some are still living. If you come here for the taking our mountain, well, we ain't come here to give it. I have dreamed on this mountain since first I was my mother's daughter, and you can't just take my dreams away. And now with me watching, no, you can't just take my dreams away without me fighting or you can't just take my dreams away that was holly near singing mountain song as i'm sure most of you have heard um the u.s supreme court has overturned uh, the Roe v. Wade decision, which uh, gave a judicial legality to uh, access to abortions for women across the country. Um, this terrible decision by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, really restricts freedom of women and all of us. Um, and there's every indication that the current Supreme Court is going to go after um, uh, rights uh, given uh, for sexual orientation and even contraception. So, but I am very pleased um, to have with us today on the show um, Sandy Birch, who is the co chair of the Western Montana chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, and also Carol Wald, who is an organizer with the Western Montana chapter of Democratic Socialists of America. Great to have you uh, on the show, Sandy and Carol. Thank you. Great to be here. Great. Well, um, as is our custom, um, if you would just uh, 
say something uh, interesting about yourself and um, why don't you go first, Sandy? Um, yeah, my name's Sandy and I am, uh, well, I'm really glad to be here today and I uh, work on a farm here uh, outside of Missoula growing some uh, organic vegetables. Um, so that's something interesting about me. All right. How about you, Carol? Um, I, I think in the interests just of, uh, it's not the most interesting thing about me, I, I don't think, but in the interests of uh, destigmatizing abortion, I'd just like to say I did have two abortions and I am ever so grateful that they were safe and legal. Yes, very much so. Well, Sandy, um, let's start with you. Um, what, what's, what do you make of the Supreme Court decision? Um, <clears throat> I really think that there, I guess the overall take is that they think that we are divided enough that they can get away with this kind of um, rollback of our rights. <clears throat> And um, yeah, last night I was thinking of it kind of as this dance that occurs between um, the, the ruling class, so the, the very, very wealthy few, the 1%, whatever you want to call them, um, and their minions, the people that they pay off, um, and, and then the rest of us. And there's this kind of con this, this constant dance between where they're trying to find the line between how much they can exploit us, how much they can get out of us. And, and like, until a certain point, then the other side of the line is the point at which we will actually resist um, that exploitation. And I think that we're, yeah, we're at a, we're at a particular um, fluctuation in that in that dance right now where they think that they because I mean this is going to be um so hard on so many people I mean it's going to have such drastic effects um for just everyday people around the around the country and you know especially that's going to fall really hard on um people of color and low-income communities you know so I just I just know that <clears throat> there's um it's just gonna be so so bad for everyday people that they wouldn't they wouldn't take a gamble like this if they didn't think that we were divided enough amongst ourselves based on ideological lines or you know the identity politics that they basically just drip feed us um that that we can't come together and and you know, actually demand what, what we do, the, the rights that, that are our rights. Cause throughout the history of this country, we, even though the country did not start out as, as grand and glorious and democratic as we're often told that it did, it still has been, uh, you know, there's been an increase of, of rights for people, for people and the, and the sphere of people who are protected um, under the law has been increasing progressively um, for the, the, the history of this country. 
And um, and so to have the Supreme Court do something like this, that just so is the is the first time that a, that a right, an individual right of protection like this has been rolled back. And um, it, that's that indicates, I think, um, a, a, it's a significant moment for us to to come together and work with each other and like listen to each other. Because, you know, we have, so if they think that we're that divided, that they're going to be able to get away with something like this, we have to prove them wrong. Like that's our task is to, mm-hmm. is to come together and, um, and prove to each other and, and to, and to the, the people who would exploit us that, that we're not that divided and that we can't, you know, if they're not going to protect us, we will protect each other. And, um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of my initial mm-hmm. take. That's you, really, yeah, that's really great. Um, Carol here. Um, and just bringing it back to Montana. Um, yes, Montana, Montana is still allowing abortions. So yay. However, we're really, really under threat. First of all, uh, Wyoming, uh, Idaho, North and South Dakota, our, our neighbors all have trigger laws, which are making uh, it immediately illegal. So that means uh, the resources that we do have here in Montana are really going to be taxed. And even though abortion is legal here, we are facing big rollbacks. So there is uh, really a lot of work to be done to fight back right here in Montana Mm -hmm. to uh, keep abortion safe and legal. And we're having uh, legislative elections, uh, general elections coming up in this November. Um, and, And that is certainly a place where uh, uh, people should be active and making sure that we don't have, uh, anti-choice uh, supermajority in the Montana legislature. Um, and uh, because that would, that would allow uh, the supermajority of, of uh, anti-abortion people, um, they could just put on the ballot, uh, a ballot initiative undoing the right to privacy that's in case in the Montana constitution, right? So they can't undo the constitution, but they could shortcut the uh, signature collection uh, process and just uh, directly put on the ballot um, uh, constitutional initiatives. Um, Sandy, um, why do you think that, uh, what's the background that you understand uh, of, of why did we get to this situation? Why, why is it that, um, you know, we've had this loss of rights and why is it that, um, uh, you know, uh, we seem to be going backwards? Well, I think it's, uh, I think that (laughs) the long answer, I think probably starts with like the great depression and, um, and the new deal and the, that that whole political order that was ushered in where once again people were immiserated and sick of it and were were uh, you know had been um exploited by once again by the ruling class to a point that they wouldn't 
they just wouldn't handle it anymore. And it ushered in a new order in which they demanded that the state actually meet, actually ensure that their more of their basic needs were met. And then that's when you have all the gains of, of the labor movement, you know, all of these things that were impressive achievements um, in, in the, in the labor movement and in the way that the economy was regulated. Um, and then I think you have, I think it was like it, it, in the seventies um, when neoliberalism started to take over. And that was also when <laughs> the, um, when Charles Koch started his right-wing think tanks and when all of these billionaires got together and they said, wow, if, these successes of the labor movement continue if the if the everyday people continue to successfully get what they need uh from from the state and if the state continues to be basically like on their side (laughs) and demanding more from from the billionaires um then we're then we're going to lose all our fortunes we're going to lose all our power we're not going to be kings of gods in the world anymore. And that's, of course, existentially frightening to somebody like that. And so they launched, a, you know, a very well, I mean, they, they went about their business with, you know, an impressive amount of strategy. And they deconstructed all of these antitrust laws. They deconstructed all of the regulations. They, you know, they got like, they got welfare um eviscerated you know i mean they did all of these things to they they pulled apart the labor movement and and co-opted really this kind of like working class politics um so that it seemed so anyways i, I don't want to get too in the weeds but basically <laughs> they they six they they had a strategy and that strategy included installing a supreme court like the one we have right now you know so like this supreme court and what it's doing today is like one of the end games of this whole move, this whole right wing strategy that started in the 70s. And um, meanwhile, the Democrats are in bed with them. I mean, the, the Republicans and the Democrats are in the same bed and the bed is made out of the money of the billionaires as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned. And I mean, the Democrats, the Women's Health Protection Act has been there since like 2013 or something like that. But the Democrats refused to get rid of the filibuster in order to pass it, because if they didn't have the filibuster anymore, they might actually have to, like, do some stuff that the people want them to do. And so they're scared to get rid of the filibuster. And, you know, so there's and 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 then not even on top. I mean, I think that this situation also really highlights the undemocratic nature of so many so many aspects of our government like the the supreme court is profoundly undemocratic we have like we have these few this handful of people that makes these decisions that affect millions of of people that live in this country and they are not elected and they are put there for life <laughs> like that's a that's a that's a that's a monarchy like that's an oligarchy like and and um and then when you talk about how Congress, how Senate is structured and how it favors these lower population conservative states um, to have like an outsized impact on like Montana to have an outsized impact on national politics. Um, so so that's that's how I think we got to this. Um, that's what that's why I think we have this 
loss of loss of rights and that and then you know obviously they're coming for um people with uteruses first but then they're going to come for um everybody else who stands out and who is a target of of um white supremacist imperialist capitalism Mm -hmm. And, and just by the way a note um we specialize in getting in the weeds in this show, so no problem. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Carol, Good. did you wanna did you wanna chime in too? Oh, that was really great, Sandy, and and I agree, of course, with with that analysis. Um, and I think as far as uh, the uh, abortion groups and uh, you know the large abortion groups, I think, have been on the defensive because of this right rightist onslaught. And uh, I think we've lost a lot of ground by uh, by not staying militant. Um, I think we've been reacting defensively, and certainly, uh, as was uh, stated in the uh, guest editorial, um, the um, the left uh, has been uh, expending an enormous amount of energy, um, not meeting movement goals, but just working to defend the rights that we have left. So, um, yeah, so that, that's a piece of it. So I advocate a return to militancy, nonviolent, of course. <laughs> and I, go ahead. What Sam. do you, yeah, I guess my question is, what do you mean by that? By, by militancy? militancy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, like simple change of language, like destigmatizing the word abortion, for instance. I mean, one in four Americans has had an abortion. Um, So uh, that's just like this normative health practice. Um, And instead, what has been drummed into us is the use of the word choice and, uh, you know, not calling it what it is. So I want to reappropriate some of the language. And, you know, yeah, that, that would be one strategy. Um, I know that some of the larger organizations have um, been against uh, uh, accompaniment sometimes and have sometimes uh, been against um, uh, confrontation outside of clinics with, uh, with people who try to get in the way of those seeking an abortion. Um, and I think the larger groups kind of got a little co-opted, frankly, by the by the Democratic Party. And uh, we've uh, we've lost a lot of ground. So um, thanks for that. Um, wh- what other steps can we do to move forward from here? I mean, where do we go from here? This is um, clearly a continuum, right? This is. Uh, not something that just is a bolt out of the blue. It's as Sandy well said, it's, it's a, uh, there are many things at work here. Um, and it does have to do with power. I would, I would absolutely agree with your analysis there that in the end, this is about power. Um, but where, <clears throat> how can we, um, reverse this? What, what, or what are some of the ways that maybe we could move forward from here? 
I think, yeah, kind of like I mentioned before, I think we have to turn, or we get to turn to each other. Um, and that is one of the things that I've been, I mean, yesterday, I didn't even have time to feel upset. I felt uh, immediately grateful, you know, that I had Carol and Mark and everybody else that I've been working with to turn to, right? You know, like I, I knew I had my, I texted you, you know, like I had your phone number and I could text you. And like, those are the kind of relationships that I think we need to build. Um, and with, with just like, as many people as we can and and i and i think we need to reach across what we dis, what we think to be divisions amongst us you know like i i think that people especially in montana um i think people overestimate the difference between people who voted for trump and people who didn't vote for trump and and that really i mean especially in in rural states like this people are are hurting because neoliberal politics has has abandoned rural america and and that's montana and um and i think that that's ju that's justified that people are are angry about that um and in it and it because of superior messaging and the fact that republicans are not afraid to talk about um economics and and they're also not afraid to to race bait people and stuff like that too but i mean i think that they have been able to speak to a working class um and 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 get them to vote in a way that's not really in in their own best interest um and so if if we can as individuals understand that the majority of of our neighbors and our community members believe in these individual rights you know and like the right to abortion and the right to marry whoever you want to marry you know the like all all of these things all of these things that the supreme court is going to attack um it, we i think we need to to be able to reach beyond identity politics and like what we think divides us from from our neighbors and our community members and just like really see each other and um and and of course look beyond like race you know because like that's also huge um and um connect just connect with with each other and build and 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 support each other you know like address each other's immediate needs so you know that's like mutual aid like um you know gathering funds to like help people who need abortions um going to the clinics and protecting them from from anti-abortion activists when they're actually walking into the clinic um educating yourself about self-managed abortion and like how to um how to you know help your friends and your new contacts all these people that you know one if they need that and two teach them how to share that information um i mean there's just i think there's really endless ways that we can directly support each other and and that may be you know i mean i think that's that's a question for me as we continue down this the next many decades is like are we are we going to actually be able to successfully demand a new political order that actually serves us because i would certainly like that to be a part of it as well. And I think that's the hope of, 
most socialist and leftist is that we could place enough pressure on the Democratic Party, which we have to align ourselves with, even though they're like not doing anything for us yet. Um, but we can we put enough pressure on them that we can get some actual changes at the state level would be great. However, you know, one of the resources Carol shared with me said, you know, like, what do we do when we realize that they're not coming to save us? You know, like nobody's coming to save us except ourselves. And, and I do think that um, the, 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 the task is to take care of each other and, and build that community resilience, organize like a sustained movement. Each person needs to figure out like how they can plug in for the rest of their lives, right? Because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not, I'm not trying to burn out <laughs> because I need to be able to do this for many, many, many decades in, into the future. And, um, and the more that, that we can do that kind of, that kind of organizing, that kind of mutual aid support and, and also educating people, you know, that like their circumstances are not their fault. And to me, that's part of the power of a, of a socialist worldview is like this, it, the, <laughs> we have been failed. You know, I mean, we have been like intentionally exploited time and time and time again by, by in just like incomprehensibly wealthy people who thus have incomprehensible amounts of power over us. And, and so, so the most of the hardships that we face in our lives and, and, and our potential failure to like rise up and overcome those hardships, it's not, that's not our fault. And, and when you can like educate people about who actually bears the responsibility for the hardships they face in their life, whether, you know, it's, it's not being able to access an abortion when you really need one or, or what, but like, if you can inform people of that, I think you'll have one, you'll have a community of people that supports each other. And that is that, that understands what's actually wrong instead of thinking that it's like immigrants coming over the border, you know, or something that is not actually the problem. And, um, and that, and that's, uh, you know, that, that I think that could have the potential to make some changes in our, in our, policy and and you know but i'm not holding my breath for that but i do know i do know that we can support each other yeah well said and 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 a note for our listeners carol here has been nodding her head vigorously <laughs> what sandy has been saying which the nods don't translate on radio but so that's why i mention it but carol what do you do you want to add something to that other than nodding vigorously. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I, of course, I agree with, with what Sandy's been saying. And in terms of uh, that solidarity that she's been talking about, reaching out and helping each other. Um, we are working on putting a group together right here in, in Missoula um, based on uh, principles of... Uh, reproductive justice as opposed to reproductive rights. And an emphasis in that group is um, to reach out across those class lines and race lines um, that, that 
have, uh, you know, have not been, of course, adequately addressed in this country and uh, make sure we have people of color and low-income people and immigrants and uh, the LGBTQ community, those most impacted by laws like this, come together and figure out how we can all help each other and work together to have a, a more just society. Um, you know, we're, we're facing criminalization of, uh, of a lot of people. And that's something that uh, the black and brown communities, of course, are very well acquainted with. So as white people, we have a lot to learn from them. Well, and I know that one of the things um, <clears throat> that the both of you and, and myself as well have been working on is uh, a rally this Sunday. Um, can uh, Sandy, you want to tell us something about that? Yeah, the um, the rally is this Sunday at 11 to 1 at the uh, Missoula County Courthouse that this Sunday is um, June 26th. And uh, we'll have speakers, we'll have um, about aiming for about 15 minutes of, of structured speakers and then an additional uh, chunk of time for, you know, folks who spontaneously want to get up and, and share their stories or their perspectives. Um, and then we're going to march. Um, we've got, uh, we're going to have a, a banner that I think is going to be really great. And, um, and we're going to march through Missoula. Um, and also I'm really happy because Carol and Bob have been working on pulling together a, um, list of, of, of actions that people can take avenues for action. So, you know, if they, Maybe all that they can do is donate. We have a, a Su the Susan Wickland Fund is um, a Montana abortion fund uh, that you can donate to. Uh, we have our contact information for the Reproductive Justice Working Group that Carol was just talking about. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of other resources so that people can, you know, I think a lot, a lot of the messaging um, from more mainstream uh, Democrats is all, all you can do is vote. Just all you can do is vote for a Democrat. Oh, and also like give us some money too. And um, that that's just uh, that's just not that's not all you can do. There's so much so much more that that can be done. And so with the with the information that we're going to be handing out there, we just want really want people to know that like now is the time to to do more than vote. Just like Roe was the floor, not the ceiling. Voting is the floor, uh, not the ceiling. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's going to be a great event. Yeah, good. Could you? And I think um, people are going to have the opportunity to vent nonviolently their anger and distress about, uh, about uh, having rights taken away from us. Yes. Um, just a little side note, could you speak a little more about the Susan Wickland Fund and, and what that does? Um, I think it's really interesting, especially <clears throat> since we're surrounded by states that have these trigger laws that will make all abortions illegal um, in all the states around Montana. Carol, I think you know more about that than well, I do. Well, you know, Susan Wickland was uh, a real uh, Montana hero. 
And uh, she was all about providing safe and affordable abortions. She faced a, an enormous amount of stress. The Susan Wickland Fund is um, named after her and it's mostly volunteers. Um, and um, they generate funds to help uh, low income people um, get much needed health care that is abortion. So what we're talking about is we need child care, we need um, a place to stay, we need, you know, the fund for the abortion, you know, the money for the abortion. It's uh, really, really tough on people, especially people who have a limited income. Um, they have to travel, gas prices are high. So the Susan Wickland Fund is, uh, is, uh, is really a great kind of mutual aid um, organization. Uh, there are lots of ways you can plug in with Susan Wickland and, um, and uh, yeah. I, I imagine that um, a lot of Montana abortion providers are considering an increase uh, uh, for women seeking abortions from out of state, right? By big time, um, and maybe not. We'll see. I mean, I, I'm I'm not I'm not that knowledgeable about that, but I would suspect that that could very well be the case, since Montana. Um, but through its constitution, um, it guarantees a right to privacy. And, uh, and so abortions are safe for now, although there's the, the wolves are knocking on the door. Um, one, uh, one thing I want to ask before we leave here is um, uh, what are some of the organizations involved in this uh, rally tomorrow? That, Carol, I'm also going to turn that over to you. Okay, we've got uh, participation by uh, Planned Parenthood, Susan Wickland, YWCA, Jeanette Rankin, uh, Peace Center, Montana Women Vote, uh, All Nations Health. Um, oh, the, uh, the uh, Racial Equity Project of Montana. Um, Hmm, I'm drawing a blank. Certainly DSA, we're, we're, we're putting it together. Um, yeah, we've got some clergy involved, which is, which is always a good thing. There's a lot of power to be had there. And um, I'm trying to think of, oh, certainly ACLU. Um, so we're, we've got a lot of groups coming together. There's a lot of outrage. This is a, a terrible and also exciting time in history. Indeed, indeed. So for listeners, that's um, on Sunday, June 26th at 11 a.m. at the Missoula County Courthouse Lawn, um, please be there and uh, express your uh, e emotions about this and, uh, and share it with others. And there will be uh, information and opportunities uh, for you to get involved and to do some of the things that our, our guests here have been talking about. So um, once again, um, it's been great having Sandy Birch and Carol Wald on the show. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. I hope it thank was- Thank you so much. Yeah, I, thank you so much for having us. Good, and that wasn't too terrible, was it? 
<laughs> no. It's always fun to, to talk about this stuff. You know, it's just so, so important. It affects every little bit of our lives, really. And, you know, here in Montana, you know, the talking about the solidarity that, uh, that Sandy's been emphasizing, you know, in Montana, people help each other. And, and, and uh, it's good to be here. I think we can do a lot together. Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around Get their share Poor people gonna rise up Take what's there Talking About a Revolution by Tracy Chapman. So thanks for listening, everyone. Please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs on the air. Just go to our new website at www.1015kfgm.org and you can make it there. Everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Thank you. Please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. It's coming to America first. The cradle of the best and of the worst.
here they got the range and the machinery for change And it's here they got the spiritual thirst It's here the family's broken and it's here the lonely say That the heart has got to open in a fundamental way Democracy is coming to the U.S.A. Democracy is coming to the 